0: Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Robert Ward, Director of the IISS's GeoEconomics and Japan Programmes. Today marks the 50th episode of this podcast series, and what better way to mark this anniversary than with a session devoted to China. While in our past podcasts we've discussed how other countries are reacting to or engaging with China's foreign policy, today we're going to talk about the status of China's domestic politics and how that influences China's foreign policy behaviour. Here to help us understand the complexities of Chinese politics, and perhaps, I hope, even to dispel some commonly held beliefs, I'm delighted to welcome two of the Institute's leading China experts, Maya Nauens and Nigel Inkster, to the show. Maya is IISS Research Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization. Maya has been at the IISS for three years, focusing on Chinese military and security policy. Before joining the Institute, she worked with the EU in the Asia Pacific. Among Maya's myriad activities at the IIISS, she is currently working on an exciting DIWS Adelphi book on China's Digital Silk Road, which will be published early in 2021. She is a sinologist by training and a fluent Mandarin speaker. Nigel is one of the Institute's senior advisors. He has been with the IIISS since 2007 and has a particular focus on China's cyber capabilities. Among Nigel's many activities in previous roles, He's been engaged in a variety of paradiplomatic activities on behalf of the UK government. Nigel is also working on a book, The Great Decoupling, related to China's technological ambitions and how they shape its international relations and strategy. And this book will be published towards the end of this year, all being well. He's also penned a Double S Adelphi volume on China's cyber power. And Nigel is also a fluent Mandarin speaker. Welcome, Maya and Nigel, to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Robert. It's great to be here.
2: Thanks, Robert. It's nice to be here as a guest for once.
0: Good. Great to have you both on board. So my first question to you both, um, along with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, China's dominated the news this year, uh, latterly on account of its geopolitically sharp elbows, whether this be the stepping up of territorial needling in the South China Sea, uh, its wolf warrior diplomats, its crackdown on Hong Kong, the standoff with India, the list goes on. Uh, What does all this tell us about what's happening uh, inside China uh, and who's wielding power in in Beijing? Maya, would you like to go first?
2: Yeah, I think you're right, Robert, to say that um, the past few years haven't necessarily gone very smoothly for President Xi and his government. Um, You mentioned a few key challenges uh, that the government is facing. um, International pressure and criticism of China is mounting and, of course, Earlier this year, we saw a result in the Taiwanese presidential uh, elections in which uh, President Tsai Ing-wen won an overwhelming majority and a landmark uh, majority for her re-election, and that was certainly not the direction that President Xi will have wanted to see a key core issue of China's uh, uh, both domestic and foreign policy concerns go. Um when it comes to decision making uh, powers in Beijing, of course, is an is an opaque system that's quite difficult to read at the best of times. But I think we can conclude that after she's first and now into a second term, it's been quite clear that she um, has done everything in his power to ensure that ultimate decision making is his. And um, he's done so by, of course, not only addressing issues of corruption that have he felt, I think, had weakened China's uh, uh, coordinate, policy coordination and, and policy effectiveness within the country, but also um, he used the uh, anti-corruption campaign to uh, push out and address issues of um, alliance to his predecessor, perhaps, or just a uh, pushback to his policy, so it's very clear that going against what President Xi wants in today's China is not a way to uh, to make a career, uh, or indeed um, uh, make your voice heard. So, um, ultimately, I would say that in the civilian realm, but also in the uh, military realm, she holds ultimate power. He's done so by uh, bringing together uh, a group of key, trusted friends and allies that he surrounds himself with. But at the end of the day, uh, consensus decision making, which was uh, a, a, a cornerstone of uh, post-Deng Xiaoping uh, China, uh, has ended.
1: I mean, I think when 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 Xi Jinping was uh, nominated to be the next uh, Secretary General of the Party, I think it's fair to say that he didn't really have that much of a, of a constituency. You know, he, um, unlike uh, his predecessors Jiang Zemin, who came from the Shanghai the Shanghai background, and Hu Jintao, who had the Communist Youth League, Xi didn't have that kind of constituency. He's had to build one. Um, and he's built it using a kind of coalition of people uh, who he got to know well in, in his previous um, appointments. So he's had to work slowly and steadily to, to um, establish himself. Um, but, you know, it, it's important to remember that he he did have a mandate to do the things that he was doing. There was a sense before Xi took over that there had been a lot of policy drift in China, that that, uh, there was a lot of inertia in the system, vested interests were getting in the way of progress. Membership of the Communist Party was seen as just another line on the CV rather than something of of any real consequence. And I think Xi felt that all this had to be um, addressed and addressed very quickly. Because at, at bottom, I think we, you know, Xi Jinping is a man in a hurry. I think what he's seeing is a very narrow window of opportunity for China to achieve the very ambitious goals that he has set for it. You know, the the the, the, the two um, centennial goals, the idea of you know China, the Chinese dream, China as a major global superpower, um, and. You know he, he the message that's been coming out um has been in essence guys. you know we so missed the boat in the past. we can't afford to do it again. We've got to get this right
0: two two striking comments um uh from from both of you uh, nigel your um uh, she is a man in 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 a hurry um and, and Maya, yours decision making is she's. Um, does this mean that we can discern, that you can discern sort of strategic intent uh, by all the things that, uh, uh, from all the things that China's doing uh, globally, or, or is this sort of more of a sort of ad hoc reaction to uh, to events?
1: Okay, yeah, well, I think there is a plan, there is a strategy, and it's summed up in this rather anodyne-sounding um, policy prescription uh, A Community of Common Destiny for Mankind, and you know, this sounds so anodyne that I think it's largely passed uh, Western policymakers by, but it shouldn't do because it is actually a prescription for what I believe is essentially a Chinese hegemonic order. Um, so um, there is a plan, but. You know, Beijing is also uh, showing itself, I think, to be a strategic opportunist in terms of how it pursues its uh, its objectives, and we've seen a kind of intensification of this following the uh, COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. Um, as as with pretty much everything else, the pandemic has tended to accelerate and exacerbated existing trends, and so I think what we've seen now is China kind of um, making a calculation that like it or not the world needs china the world is going to have to learn to come to terms with china and deal with china on its terms
2: absolutely i also think it's important then to note um in in the response that we've seen to covid Um, that it hasn't necessarily been all too um, coherent at times. We've seen a lot of focus on uh, Wolf Warrior diplomacy and that this is going to be the future of how China engages with the world and it really shows their aggressive turn in foreign policy. And that might be true, but we haven't seen Wolf Warrior being applied across the board. Uh, For example, Wolf Warrior diplomacy be uh, applied across the board, rather. Um, And notably, I think when it comes to um, the latest Uh, foreign policy issue for Beijing, and that's the UK's decision to overturn its uh, ruling on allowing Huawei and its 5G networks. We've seen quite, I think, a muted response from Beijing. Um, The wolf warrior tone we've seen in response to criticisms around COVID wasn't applied in this sense. We've seen some stark warnings, for example, of uh, severe consequences. But overall, I think in Chinese press, in uh, even Ambassador Liu Xiaoming's uh, response, there have been very vague wordings around consequences, but nothing as stark as we've seen, for example, in retaliation to remarks made by Australia or criticisms from the United States. So again, I think there is, there is a, uh, a, a somewhat calculated approach uh, when it comes to how China acts in its foreign policy, and there's not one big blanket uh, approach.
0: Your, your comments on, on Huawei, uh, Maya, so lead me to my next question. Um, there's been a lot, lot of talk recently in in the Western press about how these sharp elbows, sharp geopolitical elbows, are a sign that China's miscalculating. Um, uh, the Those that have this view would, will point to um, how China's alienated India uh, through the standoff um, uh, on the on the border between the two. Uh, the Chinese app ban, of course, uh, in, in India, which which could be uh, expanded. Uh, Amaya, you mentioned uh, Huawei with the UK, and obviously Hong Kong uh, for the UK as well, Germany, uh, human rights, Japan, um, China's been stepping up its territorial dispute, Australia. Again, the, the list goes on. These are countries where Beijing would seem to need to embed long-term dependence on it, but obviously, that's not going quite so well. So, is is that view uh of, that China's miscalculating here is is that right do you think
2: Well, I think the issue of Milt's calculation uh, then begs the question of whether China has a clear plan of how to get to its goal of um, 2049 and achieving the China dream step by step. And I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think what we have to understand is that China has an ambition and a vision for the type of country it wants to be in 2049, but doesn't exactly know how it's going to get there. in a a step-by-step fashion. So I think in that sense, we should look at where China wants to be, perhaps closer to 2035 is a midway mark to that and uh, a time when China can check its progress and see where it needs to change. Um, China, of course, can't um, control how other countries respond to its actions uh, abroad. Um, I think in the past, China has learned that um, at least from the West, uh, there might be initial uh, discontent or criticism of Chinese foreign policy actions, but those are um, are swiftly forgotten and not always spoken in public. Um, that tide is changing now. We now see uh, greater criticism of Chinese actions in public, greater pushback, um, and and I think more steps taken towards perhaps drawing clearer red lines uh, when it comes to disagreements on on core issues of values between uh, the West and China.
1: If I can come in on that, yeah, I think Mayor is absolutely right on that. Uh, we're, we're seeing a certain amount of trial and error going on here in terms of dealing with uh, specific countries and specific I- issues. And it's very interesting to note that in relation to uh, um, you know, U.S.-China relations, Uh, China latterly um, has begun to signal that it doesn't want to um, escalate, it does want to to cool relationships down. If we look at, for example, the Battle of the Consulates, China's – the the U.S. decision to close the Chinese uh, consulate in Houston, um, China could easily have escalated that by going after a major – um, U.S. consulate like Shanghai or even Hong Kong, it opted not to do that. It, 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 it uh, opted for more or less exact equivalence, and we've been seeing messages um, um, from from people like Foreign Minister Wang Yi trying to kind of say, you know, guys, let's be reasonable here, um, in in the face of what looks increasingly like uh, efforts by the, the U.S. hawks to um, put China-U.S. relations kind of beyond repair.
2: Yeah and I think that also you know, going back to the India example and what happened um, in the bloody uh, clashes between um the PLA and and Indian troops in um the high altitude disputed uh, border between the two countries um we saw a lot of aggressive or or very nationalist uh, rhetoric in Indian media um and the Chinese were re- Chinese media was relatively silent about this now you can question why but I would argue that um, doing so is in stark contrast to what we saw in Doklam uh, a, a number of years ago, where Chinese media was uh, t- took quite an aggressive tone. So this, again, I think is another signal that China has enough problems on its plate and doesn't necessarily want any of these to escalate further.
0: President Xi has had a pretty rough 2019-2020. Uh, swine fever outbreak in China, um, Hong Kong protests, trade war with the U.S., then the COVID-19 outbreak, obviously, in China, the impact on the economy, all of these things. Um, how solid uh, is his political authority at home, do you think?
1: Well, I think that uh, at the beginning of 2020, particularly with the coronavirus outbreak, uh, for a brief moment, it did look as if this could be a kind of Chernobyl moment uh, for Xi Jinping, you know, the, the, the point at which uh, it became clear that, um, you know, the, the the whole edifice was uh, built on on shifting foundations. Uh, But I think Xi has recovered from that uh, very skillfully, very quickly. Um, And um, all the issues that you mentioned, I think he's dealt with, or the Chinese party state has dealt with, actually relatively effectively. And my sense is that uh, Xi Jinping's own approval rating at home is, is pretty high. In areas like Hong Kong, for example, he's managed to rally um the population of china around the flag um you know presents um the uh, hong kong protesters um um in, in in very negative terms which the chinese population as a whole has has bought into um i think ob- obviously he's uh, relying very much on playing the the nationalism card which 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 um is um you know a double edged sword obviously Uh, But thus far, he's been able to play that relatively well. And he's also been able to mitigate um, the worst effects of um, the economic uh, challenges uh, that that China is, is clearly facing. Um, To my mind, I think the the most important thing is whether he can keep the economy on the road, because that, at the end of the day, is, if you like, the offer to the Chinese people, we'll see you right; you leave us to run the show. Um and um, if if the economic benefits stop coming then then that could be problematic. But I still think that uh, the Chinese party state has uh, sufficient uh, weapons in its armory to be able to keep the show on the road uh, for the political for the foreseeable future. So my my my, my guess is that barring some very um, difficult to imagine cataclysm, um i think that for the time being xi jinping is in a pretty solid situation and it's not just me saying this There's a recent harvard kennedy um analysis of popular satisfaction with uh, the government that uh, uh, the party state that gives them uh, approval ratings western politicians would kill for
2: yeah, absolutely, and I think it's a misnomer to assume that there's no such thing as public opinion in China. It's difficult to read, of course, um, but but at the same time, it's something that the Communist Party itself watches very, very closely, learns from, and pays attention to for uh, the survival of its uh, of the party itself. Um, so I, I would agree with Nigel that uh, at the beginning of 2020, the party will have been in a difficult position. That won't, I think, necessarily have reflected on President Xi himself. He carefully placed uh, Li Keqiang at the forefront and at the front lines of the COVID response, um, making sure that he was going to be the figurehead that fell if, uh, if the party got into trouble uh, about its response to COVID. But what has helped, of course, is that the rest of the world hasn't necessarily done a better job at handling COVID, uh, and at the end of the day, um, I think we've just uh, seen reporting that for quarter two year-on-year year, uh, GDP growth in China is back uh, is back up. Uh, it's not extremely high, of course, but but the economy is slowly starting to crawl back now. How Beijing will respond to second waves or or consequent waves of of the virus outbreak uh, in China will be important, but. Ultimately, I would say that there will be a satisfactory uh, scorecard. That doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that there's no such thing as disagreement within the party, and that's what we'll be looking for very closely moving forward. We've seen Li Keqiang make some very cautious statements uh, and very cautiously disagreeing with Xi Jinping on how recovery of the economy should move forward, uh, acknowledging, for example, that there is a large informal sector of the economy that's important uh, to pay attention to, that not all the attention can go to the big shiny SOEs and uh, private sector tech companies, um, but that the SME sector, of course, is is also suffer- is still suffering. Um, and and we've seen disagreement uh, also in Chinese press on how China should conduct its storytelling and its public relations uh, to the outside world, um, criticizing very mildly and very carefully, of course, but still disagreeing with the Wolf Warrior approach. And I think these are all things that together we should see as a picture that uh, a limited amount of discussions and um, disagreement is taking place within the party. Um, careful, of course, not to uh, upset President Xi uh, and his uh, overall authority.
0: Ma, you, you mentioned um, Taiwan earlier and uh, China's crackdown in Hong Kong. Accelerated by the national security law, of course, uh, has been a catalyst for China's deteriorating relations with the West. Does what's happened in Hong Kong tell us anything about what China may be thinking uh, about its Taiwan strategy?
2: Well, I don't think it's telling us anything that we didn't already know. Both Hong Kong and Taiwan are core issues of concern, or core areas of interest for China. They're considered domestic policy concerns in China. Um, And ultimately, territorial integrity of the Chinese uh, state is uh, meant to be an issue that's resolved by 2049, ultimately, in order to achieve the China dream. So we knew that... um, Hong, the issue of protests in Hong Kong was uh, an, issue, an area of concern for Beijing and one that they needed to address uh, quickly without uh, any, I think, or at least overt uh, in. Use of uh, the People's Liberation Army, so without putting boots on the ground in essence, um, and solving it in a a different way other than militarily. And that is, of course, by changing, uh, by instituting this national security law. I'll leave Nigel to talk about that further. But whether this tells us that there will be an invasion of Taiwan, uh, taking the island by force in order to force reunification tomorrow or next week or next year, I'm really not so sure. Um, I don't think we can equate the two. Uh, solving, uh, from Beijing's perspective, the Hong Kong issue is very different from solving the Taiwan issue in Taiwan. With regards to Taiwan, we've seen Beijing take increasingly um, repressive measures uh, in the diplomatic sphere, in uh, in um, stopping or at least limiting uh, Taiwan's participation in international uh, bodies. We see um, economic pressure being put on the island. Um, We see a lot of psychological warfare, uh, an uptick in um, aggressive um, military maneuvering around the island. But that all stops short of uh, an invasion. And I think that is because from Beijing's risk Beijing's risk assessment: um, the risk of invading Taiwan and taking military action really hasn't changed all that much. Um, there's still a concern about whether the U.S. will uh, will um, will assist Taiwan militarily and intervene, and in how quickly it will do so. And of course, whether um, the PLA can then hold on to the island. So um, ultimately, this is an issue that will require all of China's resources and have, of course, political and economic consequences to follow, most likely. Um, so whether um, Beijing is ready to put all of his eggs in one basket in order to take Taiwan at this moment of time, I think would be unlikely.
1: Yeah, I mean, on Hong Kong, I think it's very different because essentially, you know, China was already in control of Hong Kong and um it, it took a calculated gamble Bangle, um imposing the uh, national security legislation, which it was entitled to do. I mean, Hong Kong's basic law, Section 23, states clearly that uh, Hong Kong must enact um, national security legislation. There's no question about that. Uh, the point pointed issue is that the uh, law was drawn up by the National People's Congress in China rather than by Hong Kong's own legislature. But uh, my sense is, you know, Uh, China has taken a calculated risk that the international reaction will be um, lots of uh, words, but not that much action. Thus far, I think this this has been borne out. And if you look at, uh, for example, the way in which um, IPOs by Chinese companies have migrated to Hong Kong away from an increasingly unwelcoming uh, United States, you know, the Hong Kong has just set up a new Hang Seng tech index uh, for you know, shares in, 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 in uh, technology companies to kind of rival NASDAQ. Um, I think they probably calculated that uh, the United States is not going to pull the plug on uh, the, the US dollar peg because that would be at least as damaging to the USA as it would, uh, would be uh, to China. So I think they've kind of, you know, I think they've got away with it. Uh, on Hong Kong, um, and all the signs are that uh, foreign companies uh, doing business uh, in Hong Kong rather than leaving are you know going to wait and, and, and see whether they can exist in the new dispensation and I suspect they probably will. so it's a very different thing. Taiwan, for all the reasons may I just uh, articulated it, it is a challenge of a totally different order.
0: Tensions high in the East China Sea anyway, of course, uh, towards Japanese territory. There's lots of um, sort of territorial needling uh, going on uh, uh, from China um, in that part of the world. Uh, uh, Nigel, you mentioned technology, and uh, this obviously sits at the core of uh, uh, Chinese-US rivalry uh, and the rest of us as well. The smaller countries are also getting uh, caught up in this. Um, tech prowess is uh, really key, I think, as you said in previous discussions to China, China's great power ambitions. And it's at the core of uh, President Xi's made in China 2025 policy. Do you think that the West, um, the US uh, can check uh, China's tech ambitions? And if, if not, what would this mean for, for Western democracies over the longer term?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to some extent, uh, the United States can do things that will slow China down in certain areas. Um, You know, if you mentioned Huawei, which is uh, probably China's only genuine um, um, transnational uh, corporation, it's in 170 countries, it's got a huge uh, uh, annual turnover, Um, and it is... um, Uh, It does have very strong aspirations to shape uh, the future of telecommunications, um, particularly in in, in, in 5G. Uh, But um, for all um, its undoubted uh, capabilities, Huawei has been very dependent on two key areas of US technology inputs. That's advanced microchips um, and uh, a lot of the software that is behind these uh, 5G systems. Uh, the USA has now taken steps to deny Huawei access uh, to to these capabilities, and they're not ones that Huawei can replicate overnight. Particularly some of the advanced microchips. Um, so um, you know the, the, this this is an area where where the USA can um, uh, cause, cause problems because um, the, you know these advanced microchips. There are only three companies that make these. Uh, uh, electronic design automation tools that make them possible, and we're dealing here with very fine margins nowadays. I mean, you know, some of the latest uh, micro, ch- you know, chip circuits are, you know, seven nanometers across, um, you know, we, 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 which is about the size of, uh, of a single strand of DNA, and um, so you know, we, 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 it, this is very difficult. I mean, even if Huawei got these tools. Um, they wouldn't be able to do anything with them because of the product of decades of accumulated experience, what the Germans call Gefühl, that kind of instinctive knowledge that just comes from you know many, many years of doing it. So there, yes, they've got a problem. I think uh, over time they can um, deal with it, not least because let's not forget that uh, uh, when it comes to silicon-based uh, chip manufacture, Moore, Moore's law is sort of running out of road, as all exponential processes eventually do. But there are lots of other promising materials around that uh, could be developed. And I think overall, if we look at the way China has uh, created an enabling environment for its private sector, uh, invested hugely in developing these capabilities with enormous uh, concentration and purpose, my sense is that China is probably on the cusp of an innovation surge um, that um, is going to be impossible to to withstand in the long term.
2: Yeah, just to add on to that, I think Nigel makes a really good point about almost the intangible elements of all of this. That it's not just uh, as simple as buying a, ma- a machine to produce these chips, and there and there you go, you're done. Um, but in that essence, I think there is a greater need perhaps to look at the other types of, um, of, Uh, engagement that we have in China a little bit more closely. Um, So when I follow, for example, civil-military integration efforts, as they call it, military-civil fusion in China under President Xi Jinping, this isn't just simply about Chinese companies uh, under the uh, auspices of the PLA going out uh, and buying uh, up equipment and then uh, simply taking it back to China and copying it. These days, I think it's very much more... Uh, an issue of um, uh, research and development engagement, um, and really an engagement of ideas and innovative thinking, and um, all the things around innovation uh, that China is also uh, going to look at, perhaps collaborating uh, with Western uh, or innovative economies uh, with. Um, so there's, there's an issue there of uh, perhaps uh, expanding uh, that area uh, of interest as well, but I would agree with Nigel that um, the old premise that China cannot innovate uh, and is therefore bound to never innovate uh, is, is something that we n- really need to rethink.
0: I, I do like a good German compound noun and a finger spitz has just made my day. So thank you for that, uh, Nigel. So what, what you're both saying, in effect, is that, um, is that uh, China is on the cusp of developing that finger
1: Yes, to varying degrees um in different uh, technologies. I mean some are easier than uh, others to adopt. Um but um I think you know the the you know the, the impetus uh, is there and the worry that I have um actually is a countervailing loss of impetus in the West if we're not careful. Um you know there there we we have this kind of blithe assumption that the West is always going to be um, predominant um, in in these areas of technology, we, we, we tend to forget you know, that for most of recorded history, China was the world's global science um, and technology superpower responsible for about 25 percent of all uh, recorded um, uh, inventions. Um, and around the 15th century, for all sorts of reasons, which I won't bore you with, they kind of lost ground. They lost impetus. And uh, come the Industrial Revolution, they missed it with all the dramatic consequences that uh, that, 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 that we have seen. Um, and my worry is that um, unless... Um, the USA and other Western countries can mount a coherent response to the China challenge of technology, we might find ourselves in a cycle of decline. And the answer is most certainly not cutting China out. You know, that, 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 that you know, for all kinds of reasons, um, is both undesirable and probably impractical. Uh, to do, people talk about decoupling. It's a, you, know, you mentioned that as a, the, the, the title of my book, um, and you know I want to make clear that I'm not advocating decoupling. I think it's a really, really bad idea for all kinds of reasons. Um, but if we cut ourselves off uh, from China, we might find ourselves missing out um, on some important new developments. Um, and actually, uh, where we got to where we are now, has been the result of, um, by and large, pretty felicitous engagement between uh, the West and China in, in in these areas.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, decoupling, uh, Nigel, because that takes me to uh, perhaps one of the, uh, a question on decoupling, and, and decoupling is being discussed in in all boardrooms, in governments, and so on. It's one of the big issues i think for the global economy going forward and and you've sort of articulated very well the implications of uh of of decoupling do you think um a, a couple of questions for for both of you really um do you think that well, a decoupling is is possible and if it is what sort of uh, form would it take um hard decoupling soft partial managed There's all sorts of uh, variations doing the rounds in the ether
1: I think we're going to see a very variable geometry. There are some areas where removing uh, manufacturing from China and relocating elsewhere, particularly in low-end um, labor-intensive technologies, uh, the attractions of doing that are manifest. China's own manufacturing costs have gone up significantly, so transferring some of this low-end activity to Cambodia, Vietnam, you know, Bangladesh, wherever, um, make, makes a lot of sense. The other area where it makes sense is a very high end where you're talking about technologies with a lot uh, of dependence on automation. You know, There, there, there is no particular benefit to, to, to companies um, situating those processes in China other than um, in terms of access to a still very attractive uh, China market. But uh, I think we're going to see uh, a lot of companies... Um, Very conflicted here, um, not least because a lot of uh, American and other foreign companies, Japanese, are are in China precisely because of the China market, and they don't want to lose the access to that. And this is true also for some of the high tech, for for the high tech stuff I mentioned, uh, um, advanced microchips. There are some U.S. corporations that derive up to fifty percent of their revenue from uh, high tech sales to China. You know, now if they lose that. That 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 is going to be that is going to be very painful, and could itself feed into a cycle of decline as there's less revenue for investment in next generation technologies, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's going to be very messy, very partial. And to the extent that it happens, you know, it's, it's certainly not, I think, going to result in what Donald Trump promises, which is a, a kind of renaissance of uh, U.S. Um, um, factory um, you know, factories and, and manufacturing. Um, the the, the costs involved in doing that are, are in many areas, prohibitive. It just makes no sense to take relatively cheap and efficient manufacturing processes out of China and relocate to America where the costs are going to be much higher. And actually, the skill base has substantially deteriorated over the last uh, couple of decades. You're going to have to train a lot of people from, uh, from ground zero.
2: Yeah, I think the the idea that this is going to be a quick and easy, straightforward, uh, and a decisive uh, policy is 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 just, um, I think, really overselling it quite a bit. Uh, I, I agree with everything that Nigel just said, and um, I mean, what what more can I add to it? I think. You know, 5G has kind of become this uh, flagship of the decoupling uh, movement uh, and calls for greater decoupling between China and the U.S., but also the West in in, in general. And of course, um, we see news of of the U.K. and a few other countries pushing back to the integration of Huawei and 5G networks. But we forget that Huawei isn't the only uh, Chinese company that operates uh, globally in uh, the tech sphere uh, from China. And it also isn't the only uh, 5G, isn't the only um, technology at stake here. Um, We're talking not just about 5G or not just about microchips. What we're talking about in decoupling is an entire system. Um, and to do so uh, and to decouple an entire system, everything from the hard components uh, and the knowledge behind that to um, software stacks and the like uh, is, I think, going to be a formidable challenge. And one, we really have to question whether we want to see or not, um, you know, just looking at the digital Silk Road as well and China's efforts in exporting its uh, its technology and investing in, in digital Uh, connectivity and digital technologies abroad, um, it's clear that I think a majority of the world is still very much relying on Chinese uh, companies and Chinese technology to improve its connectivity. And we don't have a solution to replace that globally yet uh, as the West. So, um, again, I, I agree with Naljo, this is going to be a difficult, pro- a difficult uh, problem to tackle and a difficult policy to enact um, holistically. Uh, and ultimately, we have to ask what the result of that is going to be and whether that's yeah. favorable for everybody.
1: Yeah. If I can add something to that on the Huawei 5G point, um, as a British uh, telecoms uh, engineer said to me recently, so we're going to strip out of our network, um, the Huawei equipment, um, and we're going to replace it with equipment from uh, Nokia and Ericsson, which is made in guess where, China. Um, the only difference is that it's uh, that it's not as good, um, it's more expensive, <laughs> um, and it's not as uh, trustworthy as the Huawei equipment, which is subjected to uh, intense um, examination before it's deployed in the system.
0: A great point, Nigel, on the sort of difficulties of of decoupling the sort of physical different difficulties of decoupling. Um, my final question: I am going to ask you to put yourselves uh, in the shoes of sort of Western policymakers for a little bit. Uh, the West's attitude to China has has swung between the extremes of accommodation uh, and hostility. The former probably hasn't worked uh, overall, um, and it's difficult to see how the latter can be an enduring strategy given China's size and dominance in Asia, the world's most dynamic economic area. So how should the West deal with China going forward?
1: If I can pick up on your question, I I, I would actually call into question the proposition that engagement hasn't worked. I think if we look at uh, the the totality of engagement since uh, the Nixon visit in the 1970s, it has transformed China from something we really didn't want to have um, into something that is a problem uh, that re- requires rather more sophisticated thought and, tr- uh, and statecraft than, than we have uh, latterly been applying to it, but isn't a, you know, an existential threat um, in the same way that Mao's China actually aspired to be? Um, so it, you know, it is a much more complicated uh, question than that, um, but we can't cut China off except to our own detriment so we've got to learn to deal with this new um phenomenon that 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 we are confronting and i think at the same time we've got to be careful not to be drawn into what i would refer to as the pompeo trap the idea that we should be complicit in you know in, in creating a situation in which um china 's relations with the Western world are damaged beyond repair, which seems to be you know what what, what, what the objective is at the moment and that is going to require a degree of, of of thought and skill um and the first thing I think we need to do is 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 uh, invest very rapidly um in acquiring the knowledge and skills um that 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 are are needed for this. Um, governments you know, probably need to get a lot better at drawing on the expertise that uh, already exists rather than trying to reinvent the wheel um, uh, in terms of their estimation of what China is and, and, and how to deal with it. Um, and I think what we need you know, to, is, I mean, China in, really invites us to take a hard look at ourselves and our own shortcomings and you know, ask ourselves what China does well that we might actually be able to learn from. Um, COVID-19, I think, is a, a good case in point, point. Um, and it requires a degree of self-awareness um, that, that doesn't come easily to um, Western uh, political systems, but uh, I think is a necessary precondition for dealing with the phenomenon that is China.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think a lot of this has to do with um, some introspection and some very difficult introspection uh, at home. Uh, and not necessarily only uh, looking to China and being reactive uh, in a very panicked way, which is what I would classify most policy on China these days as being. Um, I I, I think, I mean, just looking at, for example, back to military-civil fusion, a lot of uh, progress that China has made or a lot of technology that China has leveraged from the West um, has not necessarily always been done in a covert way. It's been done in very... Um, in legal ways through investment uh, and, and foreign direct investment in in uh, European companies. Um, and most European companies didn't have an investment screening mechanism until about last year. And at the moment, uh, out of the EU 27, I think eight still haven't made any uh, moves towards creating an investment screening mechanism. So there are some real shortcomings at home that mean that China can continue uh, uh, conducting um, itself in the ways that suits its interests and that perhaps are detrimental to ours. But that isn't necessarily uh, I think China's fault here. that's that's ours for not responding. And I think the other thing um, that is starting to change that that needs to um, be built upon is uh, speaking more directly and more openly about concerns when it comes to China, uh, not only conducting um, these talks behind closed doors, but saying it in a very open fashion so that our own public audiences in Europe and in the West uh, also catch up to this um, and build their understanding of China. um, And that we ultimately conduct foreign policy towards China in a coordinated uh, fashion with friends and allies.
0: So a strong call from both of you, I think, there for engagement and uh, coordination, as you said just now, Maya. Uh, my very final question then to you both: uh, Will we get that if there is a Democrat president in the White House next year?
2: Well, I think on both sides of the, I think on both sides of the aisle, uh, the debate on China has changed and, and shifted to a much more confrontational uh, perspective. Um, so I think even under a Biden presidency, uh, China policy would be at the heart of uh, the U.S.'s foreign policy concerns and and an overall um, competitive policy would be one that is is going to be the focus. But uh, that will be, I believe, in greater coordination with allies and partners, um, which has not necessarily always been the case with the Trump administration.
1: I agree with that um, to a degree. But I think that uh, if we do get a Biden presidency, we might find that... uh, um, U.S. policy towards China is is more um, informed by the kind of ethical and moral dimension, which may not actually help in terms of uh, dealing with China. And I also I agree with Maya that we can probably expect efforts towards a more coordinated uh, strategy uh, with allies. Um, but i kind of feel that uh, we're pu- you know we're we're sort of pushing here against the tide a bit in the, the sense that uh, i i i sense uh, us um global disengagement um is more of a structural phenomenon and not merely a function of, of a trump presidency i think this is a kind of dynamic that uh, you know is is playing out now um, I think the USA is getting tired of playing the role of global policeman, and I do actually question whether it's actually going to be able to, so to speak, climb back up in the saddle in the way that many people hope and expect. An
0: excellent uh, point uh, to end on uh, there, uh, Maya and Nigel. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I always listen, enjoy listening to you talking about China, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So many, many thanks. Uh, And thank you for helping us to understand China and how it's thinking a little bit more.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Robert.
0: And thank you, our listeners, for joining us today as well. Please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions just like this. And And to keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and defense, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. See you next time.